and welcome to The Activator, a podcast dedicated to helping you develop confidence and strategies to share your faith. My name is Josh Duell, and on today's episode, we're going to be listening to part two of a conversation that I had with Don Everts. Don's a writer for Lutheran Hour Ministries, the teaching pastor of Bonham Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. He's been a speaker and trainer for Alpha InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and he speaks on evangelism all over the place all the time. He's authored many great books, including Jesus with Dirty Feet, I Once Was Lost, as well as The Reluctant Witness, which we're going to be talking about today. It's a book produced in conjunction with some really great research out of Barna Group. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the five markers of eager conversationalists, some practical tools that you can use to grow confidence and skill at sharing the gospel, how pastors can begin to change the evangelistic pulse of their congregations and kickstart churchwide evangelism, as well as what questions the culture is asking that our evangelistic presentations might be missing. Uh, that and much more. We're glad that you tuned in, and I hope that you enjoy today's podcast. Uh, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, less people than ever are feeling equipped, like That's their right. church is doing a good job of training them to share their faith. I think maybe that's the same sentiment with some pastors as well. I, I've heard this. Um, I believe that stat. Like when, when I saw that, um, that second finding in your book, I was like, oh, that, yeah, I knew that even before <laughs> the empirical data was yeah. there. Um, I think though, many pastors assume their people are actively sharing their faith, uh, but the stats, they're, they're proving the opposite. So I'm, I'm curious, how are people developing in their comfort and ability to share their faith? Yeah, how are they growing in that? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, yeah, I, I share I share with you. I, I think most pastors assume the people in their church have a higher level of comfortability talking about their faith than people really do, and so that may be why you know we're not investing as much in training people how to do it. Um, and and this is where you know some of the. Um, some of the findings about what what do eager conversationalists have? Uh, you know, what are these five characteristics that help someone that correlate with having more spiritual conversations? And a huge one of those is uh, that that eager conversationalists feel equipped and trained to respond confidently to the people around them, uh, and like within a conversation that they know how to kind of graciously adapt to where their conversation partner is. If you if you have that ability to kind of sense where someone's coming from, and to kind of have an empathetic sense of like, okay, they're really close to the gospel right now, so I'm just going to try to build trust with, them. or I think they're actively seeking, and so I want to, you know, I, you know, lean in with more content. That ability to discern where someone is spiritually and lean in is actually much more empowering than um, going through evangelism training that, that the net fruit that you leave with is that you have memorized a gospel presentation. Now, memorized gospel presentations are really helpful if the person you're talking to is actively seeking. <laughs> then, then it's really helpful. Yeah. Uh, but And willing to hear it, yeah. And willing to hear it, that's right. And so those, I'm not poo-pooing that. I'm just saying that the thing that, we can, that I've seen be really helpful for people is to give them some kind of basic model that is portable, they can carry around in their head for thinking about in an empathetic, non-binary way, 
where non-Christians can be and the kind of postures that they can have. So there's different models out there that uh, even that I've been a part of developing the five thresholds of postmodern conversion is one. At Lutheran Hour, based on this research with Barna, we developed what we call the spiritual conversation curve, which is this kind of visual of a bell curve to be thinking about where someone is so that in the moment, and I even use this, you know, and I do evangelism training and all that, but mm -hmm. like I need a little model, you know, so that when I'm sitting down to breakfast with someone and I'm thinking, okay, I, I think I'm pretty sure they're closed to the gospel. So my goal right now is going to be to build trust and kind of gain a hearing. And so I, I want to chat and relate with them. Like, I, and that's just, that's, that's basic understanding of how to graciously adapt to someone. This is a biblical model, by the way. I mean, Paul, right? Be a Jew to the Jew, a Gentile to the Gentile, strong to the strong, weak to the weak. I'll be anything to anyone in order to, so that some might be saved. It's this incarnational instinct that Jesus had, that Paul learned from him, that that uh, that we can do, but but we need to we all need to be trained to do that and to think in those ways. And and so the good news is we can be trained to do that, not just mm -hmm. to memorize some words to kind of regurgitate, but to memorize kind of an empathetic way of understanding where a non-Christian is coming from so that we can meet them where they are. And if the Holy Spirit moves, help them take that next step. It's funny, I was talking with a, a, a student of a Bible college here the other day. They're in their fourth year. Um, mm -hmm. They were taking evangelism class. That's why we were having the conversation. And they said at the end of the class, there was actually no practical component. The final project was a paper <laughs> on how they would engage in an evangelistic conversation with a postmodern. And it, a question I bring up in my head is just like, is there perhaps a practical component that, that's missing in biblical education, but maybe even in the discipleship yeah. or depending on your faith tradition, like the catechesis, is right. this something that we should be including as, as one of the core building blocks of what it means to be a disciple? And so out of that, I would say like, where yeah. are, where are people learning this? How are you, or how have you seen churches do this well, I guess, Don? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, I, I, I I agree that one of the, I mean, there are so many strengths to the seminary, and I, I loved my time in seminary, but um, it, it does need to be paired with really practical, on-the-ground models, tools uh, that, that, that we can use, that we can impart to people. Um, this is one of the things I love about Alpha, for example. Again, I'm not, I don't work for Alpha. You know, I never have. I, you know, I've, I've, you know, I'm a champion. I, you know, I'm a fan of what they do. But one of the beautiful things about what they do is that it is a program, right? And so a lot of churches like programs and we're like, hey, what's the next program? And so it is a program, but it's really based on relationship. And so it's a thing a church can do that uh, empowers people to do relational evangelism. And in a way that is trustworthy, that is, you know, is natural, that isn't forced, that's not, um, you know, manipulative uh, or, or anything like that. And so, you know, that, it, that is a really helpful, practical thing that people can do. Um, someone the other day, I heard them call it net fishing. <laughs> so they, they talked about, you know, a lot when we think about evangelism, we think of, it's more like rod and reel, like one person, one, non, one Christian, one non-Christian. And that does happen a lot. 
But there's also net fishing, right? There's also where we're all kind of inviting some of our friends, some of whom are non-Christians, into the same room to experience the same content together and kind of look at the core things together. So some, some basics like that are really helpful. Um, one, one of the other virtues of Alpha is that it really does focus on the basics, you know, um, kind of the core truths of the Christian faith. And that, to, to me, that is helpful for non-Christians, but it's also really helpful for Christians because uh, sometimes, you know, if you've, if you've been a Christian your whole life, if you've been a Christian for 30 years, you can kind of take the core stuff for granted you know, and kind of move on from, well, move on from the Gospels to get into the meat of, of the epistles, you know, or something like that, where, sure. where the reality is the core is in the Gospels. It is Jesus. It's all about Jesus and learning about Jesus and be in, you know, what's my favorite Jesus story these days, you know? So I think to be able to equip people um, uh, to, to celebrate the core of the faith, uh, to celebrate our own relationship with Jesus, to be able to reflect on that, because that's the kind of thing we want to be able to share with the people around, not just a summary of the gospel, but, but little, you know, if someone's seeking, they need a summary of the gospel. But if someone is like just open, let's say, you know, they're not close to the gospel, but they're just open. What they need more than anything is to hear a real life story from a Christian about how Jesus is relevant in their life. That and, and so to your question, we can write papers all day long, right? And I can ask someone, can you write a paper about blah blah blah? Okay. Can you tell me a difference Jesus has made in your life in the last month? That's a you see how that's a very different question and it's challenging in different ways. And so how do we help people to reflect on their own life of discipleship? Uh, so that they're growing as disciples, which is wonderful, but but also so that they have language and words so that it becomes natural to talk about it. You mentioned uh, the need for honest examination at the beginning. And, yeah. Um, as we're talking here, I was thinking about, you know, maybe maybe one of the ways we could honestly evaluate how our outreach, how, how well we're engaging in this mission mm-hmm. would be taking a look maybe at our baptisms yeah. <laughs> and the testimonies there and going like, are, are we seeing people yeah. come to faith later in life? Yeah. It, people get weird when you want to count. Sure. I'll, I'll be, I'll, well, mm-hmm. it depends on your tribe, I guess. It, it depends on the stream of the church that you're in. Uh, but uh, Doug Schaup, who wrote the book, uh, I once was lost with me and worked on the five thresholds of postmodern conversion. Mm-hmm. We're having him yeah. on the podcast soon. Uh, wonderful. He's, he's incredible. And one, one of the things that he really pushes on is helping churches or student group, helping them wrestle with their conversion percentage. And he's like, how many people do you have total? And how many conversions or new baptisms, right? However, your tribe counts such things. How many of those have you had in the last year? And what percentage of your total number is that? And, and, and he, he and again, he studied a lot of different healthy, unhealthy churches, et cetera, and, and kind of has a, has a target for like, you want your percentage to be, you know, and I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, you have to ask him the exact numbers and all that. But boy, I tell you what, Joshua, when, when you start talking about that, people get re- well, we're not in it just for the numbers. Even if one person is saved, it's worth it. Yeah, that's true. That's true, Joshua. <laughs> but, but, 
are we healthy if in the last five years we've only had three adult baptisms? Are we, are we a healthy church if, if that's what we've had in the last five years? And, and how can we actually, yeah, can we make someone convert? Can we make someone have faith? Absolutely not, right? We can't do that. But are we being faithful in reaching out to non-Christians? Are we mobilizing people in our congregations to be friends with non-Christians, to know how to adapt in conversation? Are we in church? When I'm preaching, am I assuming there's some non-Christians there in how I talk? Am I adjusting my language? Am I giving them application points from the scripture, et cetera? And so that question of, of saying how many baptisms or conversions or, you know, however different tribes go about um, saying, you know, my, my denomination, I'm in a Presbyterian denomination that says our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's a tricky, that's wonderfully uncomfortable as a mission, <laughs> because it isn't just to grow disciples of Jesus Christ, which is a beautiful thing unto itself, right? It's beautiful to help Christians grow. But the question is, are, are we making disciples of Jesus? Now, that never stops, and the process of being made into a disciple obviously is a lifelong thing. But are we making some new ones? Are we doing that? And, and what we've found, Doug and I together, and Val Gordon, we've, we've done a lot of work with different churches. What we've found is being willing to look in the mirror, play with numbers a little bit to, to, to try to assess how are we doing, is a really key catalyst to a church moving forward. You got to kind of look in the mirror, ask the hard questions. And that's actually where hope comes from. It's where the spirit, you know, cause you repent and you're like, we're sorry, Lord, if we're not being as faithful as we could be that, that hard look in the mirror, which is what I love about this research because it gives us permission to say, are you a reluctant witness? And that's okay if you are, but, but say it and, and bring that to God and ask him to help you become more eager. If somebody was hearing this, just the the average congregant, let's say, and uh, I mean, you've mentioned where some things that um, pastors can be doing. I mean, makes me think of like some of Keller's work on preaching yeah. and center church, and there's some good stats and quantifiables there as well. Yep, you know, yep. preach like the lost are there, and you know that will precede the lost ever being there. Um, if somebody though. Outside the pastorate, they're just they're just going. Hey, I want to get comfortable in conversations. Do you have any resources you'd point them towards, or maybe a book that was really impactful for you? Yeah, one one of the things. I mean, if people want to get you know kind of grow in that way, one of the things that we made, kind of coming out of this research, when we realized, man, the church, but like the average Christian, is not doesn't feel confident adapting in conversation and being able to do that. So, so we, and I mentioned earlier, this spiritual conversation curve. So it's this really basic, it's like it's, sophist- it's a sophisticated model because it's based on very careful research, very careful theology, et cetera. But it's also simple. I mean, it's so simple that it's like, even on accident, you memorize it. You know, it's this curve and you go up one side of the curve, you, you know, you tip the threshold on the top of the curve and then you come down. And so we've developed a number of tools around this very simple tool uh, about the curve. And so like on a very simple level, uh, if, if people go to uh, lhm.org slash curve, so it's Lutheran Hour Ministries website, lhm.org slash curve, 
and they can see all these resources. Some of them are absolutely free. We have we have a absolutely free online course that people can take. Oh, fantastic! Um, that's called uh, Prepared to Respond, and it's a whole course to teach this curve. And so they can get that. Or we, we develop these little, we call them the curve cards. And it's a little, it fits in your wallet, it fits in your purse. And it has the model on one side, very simple model. On the other side, it has a place to ask a question about two of your friends. Who, who are two non-Christians in my life? And where would I say they are on this uh, curve? And so what are my goals? What am I praying for? And what's my conversation goal for when I'm, for when I'm with them? We've, we've, it's kind of funny because we spent a lot more time on the course than the curve card. These <laughs> simple little cards, simple little cards. People are absolutely eating up these little cards because it's so simple. It's so practical. It helps me. Okay, here's my, my neighbor, Michael. Where would I put him on here? I think, I think he's open or I think he's closed. Okay, so what should I be praying for? And, and it has a little guide. If they're here, here's how you pray for them. And here's the kind of conversations, not here's what to say, but here's the kinds of conversations that will be helpful. So that, that is there. I've written a short little booklet. Again, you can get it for free. You can get the audio book for free, digital version for free, um, called How to Talk About Your Faith, An Introduction to the Spiritual Conversation Curve. It's, it's maybe a 15-minute read, 20-minute read to read the whole thing and kind of walk you through this model. So, so that, that, that's one thing I would say. We spent a lot of time thinking about how do we help people be able to respond confidently in conversations and really graciously adapt to where their conversation partner is. And, and we've been seeing great fruit come from that. Oh, that's awesome. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for sure for those who are interested in checking it out. I've looked at that, a really helpful yeah. resource. I want to ask you, to the young pastor who's maybe listening and, and wanting to help catalyze their congregation mm-hmm. to the mission uh, of evangelizing the lost. Maybe they've just taken yep. the reins of a church. Maybe they're just stepping into the lead role. How would you coach them to begin changing the evangelistic pulse of the congregation? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a great question. We, uh, Doug and I wrote a whole book called Breaking the Huddle that's all about that. But but I would say like two, like two key things would be for, for most churches, anchor it in the Bible, right? That, that this is a change that comes from the pulpit from the Word of God, because as much as we may be reluctant to be in conversations, we're pretty passionate about the Word of God. And, and if you show it to me in the Word, and by the way, it's all over the place, you know, Old and New Testament, right? Like we're called to be on mission, uh, to call people to our God, uh, to, to, to increase His fame, to help people learn about Him. So it's all over the place. And God's word is really, really powerful, right? Yeah. I mean, and so show it to people in the Bible and let the Holy Spirit move through uh, the word of God in that way. So I would say, one, like anchor it in the scripture. Two, I would say this to the pastor. You, at least you, but maybe you and a couple other people who are maybe natural evangelists in the church. Like go, like have like three months of living dangerously and like really go outside of your comfort zone to just have more conversations, to lean in a little more to conversations. Because if you get some early story uh, of, you know, so you're preaching a sermon series on God's heart for the lost or whatever, and you're able to say, you know, I was with a couple of our elders. We've been praying about this, asking God to really challenge us. Would you share that testimony of that conversation you got in with your neighbor? You get a real life happened recently kind of testimony it doesn't someone doesn't even have to have come to faith but just of a christian like going live and like seeing god come through 
those are so key. It so changes the game because all these fears just then kind of drop and people go, oh, and you didn't die. Like you, <laughs> you took a little risk. And, and actually, that sounds kind of fun. I want to have one of those kinds of yeah. conversations. And so, so I would say like anchor it in the Bible, risk early, like, and, and just make a deal with yourself. Just say, okay, the next three to six months are going to be my months of living dangerously. I'm going to go into it more than I'm comfortable. And then just tell yourself, and then I'll take a break after that. (laughs) But like early on, at least early on, get in so that even you can share, you know, and so I asked my neighbor this and it doesn't have to be awkward stuff you're doing, but just like leaning a little bit more into conversation, because even if you fall on your face and even that is an encouraging testimony to share to your congregation. Yeah, it is. I remember, um, we had um, Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Mm, in, yeah, yeah. And Mary Jo Sharp. Mary Jo Sharp, one of their apologists, fantastic, brilliant mind. Uh, one of the big lines that stuck with me out of her whole presentation was just, um, she said, God is sovereign over even your failures. Yeah. So yeah. go out and try. That's right. And I was like, that, that's just, that was the best line of the whole thing for me. Is yeah. It's, yeah. Go out and try and learn from your failure. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Let's just say um, a church really, really just, they wanted to grow into an evangelistic powerhouse. They really yeah. wanted to turn a corner here. Yeah. Um, you've done a bunch of evangelism training for churches. Mm-hmm. I've done some of that for some local mm-hmm. churches as mm-hmm. well. If a church had an unlimited budget, what what would be the best way they could uh, change the culture, spend that money in order to reach the loss? Would it be bring in an evangelism trainer? What What would it be? If, it, if they just had the money and they were like, we want to do this as quick as possible. Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I think the, I mean, um, the thing to do is to mobilize relational evangelism. And, and there's things that you can pair with that, and I'll talk about that in a second. But the, at the core of all of it is going to be mobilizing relational evangelism. Now, how do you do that, right? Uh, right. There are books, right, by the reluctant witness, you know, the, yeah. the have, have, Go by have, the have someone come in. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, have someone come in, have Joshua Duell come in and, and do a weekend seminar, like uh, have a sermon series. There's lots of different ways and fast and slow ways uh, and minor to major ways of, of you know, bring in Alpha, say we're going to do Alpha, of doing, of mobilizing relational evangelism. So that has to be at the core. And, and I would say just like choose a strategy for mobilizing relational evangelism. If you're going to do alpha, like just do alpha. Just do that. Uh, If you're going to do like spiritual conversation curve and we want to teach that to everyone, just do that. Uh, If you're going to have a a trainer come in or if you, you know, just do that. Then the question is like, once you're, you have a strategy for how to mobilize relational evangelism that you're committed to, then the key is, and this is where it does come into, it, it costs something both financially, but also in terms of time, in terms of attention. Then you've got to do the trick of aligning all your vision, your structures, and your people around that. So if if you so so you the people is what I've been talking about, right? Aligning people around sharing the gospel and doing relational evangelism. But you so you have to have the vision, right? So you're preaching it, you're teaching it, you're putting it up on the walls of your church, you talk about it all the time, you're having testimony shared. So your vision, your people, but then you also have to get your structures to align with that. And this is what a lot of churches aren't willing to do because they're willing to say, hey, for a while, we will trumpet the vision of sharing the gospel. And we will even invest 
in aligning people with that vision, but they're not willing to to do the hard work of aligning all their structures. And so, so structures are things like, what are the programs you do as a church? What are the things that you offer during the week? What, what happens during a worship service, right? What are the necessary components of a worship service? How do you handle announcements? Uh, do, do, do you assume, uh, you know, uh, uh, what kind of training happens and what kind of uh, feedback and coaching do you do for people who, who speak from up front during worship? In terms of training them and coaching them to assume there are non-Christians there. Uh, all that kind of structure work. You know, I've, I've, seen, I've seen pastors give, I went and gave a great, I will say great, who knows, it was, let's say it was, you know, serviceable. I gave a serviceable <laughs> sermon to a student ministry group up in Montana about evangelism and how we do evangelism because it is the most joyful life we can have. The scriptures, right, they say that how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Like, it is actually a beautiful life. The reason we share the gospel with others is because it is actually the most abundant life we can live to do it, right? So insert wonderful sermon here. And then someone got up afterwards, and they did 10 minutes of announcement, and those announcements undercut. So those announcements are structure, right? And they undercut everything I had just done. Because they were saying, hey, you know, we have this volunteer thing that we're doing and this volunteer thing that we're doing. And come on, guys, it'd be embarrassing if we don't get enough people who show up. So some of you could show up. And so not only was the structure of the announcements and other other programs taking up time of the congregation, but it was promoting a guilt-based discipleship uh, kind of way of going about the faith. We got to do the hard work of having the vision aligning people to it, but then doing that hard work of saying, you know what, we're going to get rid of some of our programs, or we're going to align some of our programs around this. You know, we're still going to have the quilters group, but then how do we align the quilters group around caring for our neighbors in the community who don't go to church? Does that make sense? So, So those are kind of some of the key buckets that someone's going to want to do. And you can throw as much time, money, and energy at all three of those as you, as you want, but the key is hitting all three. Oh, that's good. That's uh, really helpful, I think insightful, and probably challenging as well, going, well, how, what are we doing that is taking away? What do we need yeah. to do in order to align with yeah. where we want to get going? Uh, really big questions, of course, too hard to answer um, in, in the specific for each congregation, but it's going to take some work for an elder team to, yeah, to think that's through right. that. and. Um, you you open your book Reluctant Witness with a story. Uh, you you talk about this turning point for yourself that happened on a long, long yeah. Greyhound bus ride. Uh, we don't even have Greyhound in Canada anymore. <laughs> that shut down. Um, but I don't miss riding on the Greyhound. Um, you you talk about how you were like 15 hours into the ride before you began to talk to the individual you were sitting yeah. beside. But that once you did, the conversation went really, really well, and it served as a turning point in your life. I'd love to know, like, do you think that there's some low-hanging fruit moments like that where we've just been sitting in limbo for 15 hours and we've just failed to engage and that they could they could go yeah. really well if we engaged with them? Do you see any, like, low-hanging missional moments that we're all walking past and missing? I think so. Now, we we don't always know what they are, right? But uh, the, the real lesson for me was, you know, I ignored this person next to me for 13 and a half hours, and then all I did was turn my head, 
because I was reading an evangelism book the whole time and finally got convicted, like, I should probably talk to the human being sitting next to me. Um, all, all I did was turn my head and say hi. Now, there have been a lot of times I've turned my head and had a head and said hi, and nothing happened. But this time, it led to a huge spiritual conversation. So I think what I would say to people is, how do you turn your head and say hi more often? And, and to be open to when the Holy Spirit is doing something. So that can be someone in your life. I'd say right now, uh, you know, with, with quarantine and, and all that, we've seen a, a skyrocketing numbers of people having conversations digitally. And so I, that is a huge place. Uh, we, I've been putting a lot of time into researching digital spiritual conversations. And one of the fascinating things, Joshua, is that people are quicker to have deeper conversations digitally than they are face-to-face. And there's a, a, there's a, there's a wide variety of reasons why. Uh, and we, we can go into it and get kind of nerd out about it. But, uh, but people, people who sometimes are more closed in person are a little more willing, whether it's uh, through social media, whether it's through email, or, or whatever it is. That, that, and so there's huge opportunity for us to be thoughtful about how we can reflect on our digital voice and, and ask questions on how can I use my digital voice to encourage others, to gain a hearing with others. To, to share stories of my own life about how Jesus is good news in my life, and even to share the gospel when the time is right. So I, I'd, I'd say the fields are ripe right there, and we just, you know, lean into it. Yeah, it's interesting because we, we ran Alpha in the middle of COVID, and we were unable to gather together and um, found the same thing. And Alpha actually released some stats showing that where many were afraid of going like, hey, what's Alpha going to do? We don't get to gather together. We don't have that meal. Mm-hmm. Um, but people actually opened up more quickly. And may, perhaps that's because they're, comf- from, they're in the comfort of their own home and they're kind of they're in, in their yeah. own territory yeah. uh, in having these conversations. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. That's a really interesting insight. I I'm, I'm think I'm more prone to kind yeah. of – I've historically scoffed at the idea of just digital online evangelism – um, <laughs> uh, me too. Me too. Yeah. But um, no, that's convicting to me because fruit fruit is coming from that. And to be fair, actually, a young guy that I was discipling shared with me in the last couple months somebody he knew in high school, living in a different country. He was online and managed to lead this person to faith and had been sending them resources. So yeah. I stand corrected and and, and want to examine my own life as well and just go, where am I? Maybe walking past some low hanging fruit there. Who's, that's who's right. somebody I could maybe right. reach? Uh, back in, back in my past, and and, and search out and and, yeah. and connect with. Um, before yeah. we go, I want to ask you a question. You know, over the years, as you've shared your faith, what other worldviews do you find you engage with most? It's a good question. I would say the most common worldview that I interact with is is probably some version of, you know, I mean, you could call it moral therapeutic deism, yep. this, this sort of like, yeah, there's a God and, you know, and, and, um, and, and, you know, but we're all trying to do our best and whatever works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's kind of a low, it, it, it's a little amorphous. And I think that's some of the appeal that it has. So I would say the most common worldview uh, that, that I interact with is, is that, uh, and that it has it, that it's not a well-examined or well-defined worldview. Uh, 
in in terms of someone you know i've uh, you know I'll, I'll also interact with like you know convicted conscious atheists who are very thoughtful about that or people who are practicing another religion practicing muslims practicing jews etc but the more more common one that i interact with is this a little bit unexamined uh everyone's okay you do what is best for you and that will honor god so it's it's not a very well examined uh, a worldview, uh, but it is a worldview, sure. <laughs> and it has assumptions embedded in it, uh, as helpful or unhelpful as they are. Yeah, and it's very prevalent now. Um, therapeutic um, deism, kind of this um, idea. Yeah, that there is a God, but who, mm-hmm. you define who it is for you. It's That's centered right. probably around the, uh, you know, the golden rule but very influenced by post-modernity too. Yeah. Do you think, uh, yeah. you know, it, uh, we, we rub shoulders, we're becoming radically multicultural all across North America now. Do yeah. you think somebody needs a comprehensive understanding of another person's worldview before they engage in a spiritual conversation? Uh, I, I would, uh, not before they, not before they do, but it is a good kind of radar to have up, right? So, so I, I think I, I tend to lead, and this is why we do our training with discerning someone's spiritual posture relative to the gospel, because I think that's easier to, at, on first blush, to start to discern. But I do believe that over time, uh, that's a radar that you want to have up is, is to be discerning what are someone's assumptions that they're coming in with. Uh, what, what, you know, and which is what a worldview is all about, right? It's, it's the things that we assume. And, and so helping suss those out is really important. And I think maybe especially because a lot of people these days don't, aren't reflective consciously on their own worldview. And so it, it may be unconscious for them. And so we have to almost partner with people on, helping them reflect on their own worldview. (laughs) I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. So many people, whether they they call themselves a Sikh or a Muslim or an atheist, they've not taken a look at their, the epistemology that the foundations of their own belief. And, and um, of course we know Christianity holds water. It holds up under questioning. And so the more we can kind of engage in that question process with others and, and walk with them in reflection, I think, uh, that, that's a powerful step. I, I, yeah. I like that answer, Don. Um, what questions do you think people are asking that the church might not be answering or, or even aware people are asking? Are we missing something? I mean, I, I, think a, I think a postmodern question that people are asking is, does your faith work? Uh, I, I think in the modern era, it was more, is your faith uh, true? Does it make logical, rational sense? Yeah. Uh, and I think people these days are asking the question, does it work in real life? And often our answer to that is, yes, it makes logical, rational sense. And which uh-huh. means we're not actually answering their question. So, uh, so I think that that sort of like existential focus on does it work in real life? Does it make a difference, right? In the world I look at, there's pollution, there's slavery, there's injustice, there's racism. Does your faith impact those things at all? 
and 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 I think that question is a very valid question, and actually, it is a question about veracity. It is a question about truthfulness. Uh, but people are getting at the truthfulness not just from an objective, rational perspective, but from a perspective of does it actually work in real life? That's how I'm going to evaluate the veracity or the truthfulness of your gospel is if I see it actually solving some of the problems that are all around us. And I, and I think we don't necessarily always hear that question or, you know, I used to dismiss that question, right? Someone would talk about the, you know, the environment or something. And my instinct is like environment, like let's talk about soul, you know, <laughs> and, and yet I realized, okay, that's a real question. And they're going to evaluate uh, my gospel on whether, you know, the God that I serve cares about the earth. And so what does the Bible teach me about creation and the creator, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we could do a better job addressing that question in the different uh, disguises it comes in. Wow. I, that makes me think about a lot of things, too. I think of uh, in my city, like this Buddhism is very popular, kind of the, mm-hmm. the whole mm-hmm. um, um, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, yeah. Into, yeah. And, into all forms of New Ageism. And we were, were yep. the host city for Deepak Chopra. And so we've got people like, <laughs> engaged in, in this type of writing, too, going, we, it's not, we don't just want our, our minds enlightened. We want our lives transformed. Yeah, and, and ultimately, because the the gospel does make rational sense, it should be transforming our lives. But um, that's a fascinating insight. Thinking about maybe we're we're waging this battle on yeah. on the lines of of logic, and it's not that it it doesn't include that, but it's not the only line anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Presenting to the world yeah. how it actually makes a difference in our lives. Yeah. Oh, that's great, Don. Um, you've mentioned uh, a number of different um, resources already that are up on Lutheran Hour Ministries. Um, mm-hmm. What's What's next for you? What should we be watching out for? Yeah, so uh, we just came out with our second re- uh, set of resources when we we researched with Barna households of faith, uh, and and how is the faith being nurtured and passed on within households. Uh, and so all, all, all of those resources are now, are, are now out. People can go to lhm.org slash household, kind of find out all of that sort of thing. And then next up will be this fall where we've been processing uh, research on how Christians can relate with their neighborhood. And so we've, we've, we've been delving into that, such a fascinating area, especially you know now in lockdown and quarantine where people are in their neighborhoods more. And in yeah. their house, in, in their households more, uh, it turns out that those two topics are even more relevant than we were thinking when we started doing the research. So, uh, th- those are uh, th- the one is available now, and the other on the horizon. I'm looking forward to uh, reading that, and maybe maybe we'll get a chance to talk to you again after that. I'm I'm, I'm really look I've enjoyed your yeah. your your books in the past, and looking forward to that coming out. Uh, where could listeners connect with you and keep maybe keep track of everything that you're up to? Yeah, you know, uh, the, the best place is I do, you know, um, I, I'm on Instagram, so at Don Everett on Instagram, and uh, or no, at Everett's Don, pardon me, at Everett's Don on Instagram, but I'm not great at Facebook or uh, Instagram, and so, you know, the, the, the Lutheran Hour site or, you know, all my books are through InterVarsity Press, and so people can go to 
ibpress.com as well and, and, and find out more about what I'm publishing there. Well, thank you so much. Again, I'll have a link to those in the show notes. But yep. uh, thanks again for your time and for being on the podcast. Thank you, Joshua. It's great to think alongside you. Well, thanks again for tuning in to part two of my conversation with Don Everts. If you enjoyed the show, please hit subscribe because we're going to have a ton of more great content coming out regularly. There's a great episode coming next week, so please stay tuned for that. But until then, keep on the lookout for any missional moments that the Holy Spirit might be setting up for you to share your faith in the meantime. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week. We'll be right back.